Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Carl Drake, and I am a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and online this morning. Since 1870, UU Wausau has served as a vital force for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates. With that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please join me in responding to the responsive reading. To worship, is to stand in awe 
under a heaven of stars, before a flower, a leaf in sunlight, or a grain of sand. To all receptive before a tree astir with the wind or passing shadow of a cloud. To worship is to work with dedication and with skill. It is to pause from work and listen to a strain of music. Worship is to sing with beauty of the earth. It is to listen through the storm with a small voice. Worship is a loneliness-seeking communion. It is a thirsty land crying out for rain. It moves through deed of kindness and through acts of love. Worship is the mystery within us reaching out to the mystery beyond. I guess I did the chalice lighting at the wrong time. Uh, Please join us in, in the opening hymn number one. Randy Jefferson. This morning's Time for All Ages is an original story influenced by Stoic philosophy. A boy named John, who lived with his parents and younger brother in a small house in the southeast side of Wausau, was friends with James, who lived in a much larger house on the northeast side of Wausau also with his parents and a younger brother. 
John's house only had two bedrooms, so he and his brother had to share one, and each slept in a twin bed. His friend James and his brother each had their own bedroom with a queen-sized bed in it. John's house had one TV located in the living room. James and his brother each had a TV in their bedroom, as did his parents. And there was a fourth giant flat-screen TV in a basement theater. John's single-bedroom window looked out on his next-door neighbor's house, and the single scrubby spruce tree that was sometimes frequented by chickadees. The full wall of windows in James' bedroom looked out on majestic white pines on the banks of the Wisconsin River, which he could also see as it flowed by his house. James frequently saw many kinds of woodpeckers in the pine trees, and eagles often soared over the river. John was very unhappy. He wished he could trade places with James. One day his grandpa, who he called Pa, came to visit. Pa noticed how unhappy John was, and he asked him about it. John told him about his friend James and how John wanted what James had. Pa was quiet. When he finally spoke, all he said was, John, want what you have. John was not sure what Pa meant. That night, as John slept, he dreamt he had lost all that he had. He dreamt his family were refugees fleeing a natural disaster. They were all living in a tent in a refugee center with hundreds of other tents around them, sleeping on the ground with no trees in sight, no birds, and certainly no TV. When John woke up, he saw his brother still asleep in his bed, and it made him feel glad. He looked out the window and saw the scrubby spruce tree with chickadees flitting about, and they made him laugh. On his way to the kitchen for breakfast, he passed his parents, snuggled together in front of the family TV, and he felt warm. Pa was doing his daily brain puzzles in the kitchen. John gave him a hug. He had a big smile on his face as he whispered to Pa, Want what you have. And while there are no children here, let's still sing our children's song. you go on your way, baby. 
I ask that you be in an attitude of prayer or meditation. As I share these words from Jane Erzepka, O spirit of life and renewal, we have wintered enough, mourned enough, oppressed ourselves enough. Our souls are too long cold and buried, our dreams all but forgotten, our hopes unheard. We are waiting to rise from the dead. In this, the season of steady rebirth, we awaken to the power so abundant, so holy, that returns each year through earth and sky. We will find our hearts again and our good spirits. We will love and believe and give and wonder and feel again the eternal powers. The flow of life moves ever onward through one faithful spring and another and now another. May we be forever grateful. Hallelujah. Amen. Now let's take a moment to reflect on the joys and concerns which are on our mind and in our hearts today. Amen. You may remain seated. Please join me in singing our prayer hymn, number 83, Winds Be Still.
For a reading this morning, I chose a poem from a recent issue of The New Yorker. Now, New Yorker poems often can be pretty challenging. And I've read quite a few of them and tried to figure out just what it was that poem was supposed to be saying to me. But I thought this one was pretty straightforward, but nevertheless had considerable depth to it. The poem is entitled Feralitos. We pour sand into brown lunch bags, then place a votive candle inside each. At night, lined along the driveway, the flickering lights form a spirit way. But what spirit? What way? We sight the flame's end, swaying within, know the future's fathomlessness. We grieve, yearn, joy. Pinpoints in a greater darkness and spy sunlight brighten craters on a half-lit moon. In this life, you may try, try to, to light a match, fail, fail again and again, yet letting go, you strike a tip one more time when it bursts into flame. Now the flames are lights in bags again, and we glimpse the willow tips clutch at a lunar promise of spring. Here ends the reading.
The backstory. It's the spring of 1979, with my nursing school graduation looming. I have a major life decision to make. Being a new dad, it is time to help Anne provide and again join the ranks of the employed. I face a choice between embarking on the clinical path for which I am now trained by becoming the first assistant in surgery for the four orthopedic surgeons who then comprise the entire bone and joint clinic, or re-entering the corporate world that I had left more than five years earlier when we moved from Chicago to Wausau. My corporate job offer is a position that would be created for me in the Health Maintenance Organization Administration Branch of Employers Insurance of Wausau. My membership in this church played a big part in the decision I would make. In May of 1979, Jerry Visti, a pillar in the church, was second in command at employers, the chief operating officer. Church member Bob Gunderson, the head of advertising and communications at employers, had been a major force behind the highly successful series of train station ads on 60 Minutes that put both Wausau and employers insurance on the map. Phil Karspecken was Bob Gunderson's chief writer and our church's newsletter editor, coining the title, The Circuit Rider. Always ready with a literary quote, Phil's creative mental wheels seemed to constantly be turning under his full head of wavy hair. It's true. Like Paul Beckel, Phil was not always cue ball bald. A s Bill Huber, a senior employer's workers' comp manager, led the search committee that resulted in the calling of Dick Drinan in 1978 as our minister. Then there was the erudite Barbara Andrews, a late-in-life law school graduate who blazed the trail for women, rendering legal opinions, I believe, as employer's insurance first female corporate attorney. Barbara was also an active participant in the life of the church. Now, knowing these venerable church members had given faithful service as employees of employers' insurance, several since the end of their participation in the good war, I was convinced that I would not be selling my soul by accepting the Wausau insurance offer. I did accept and never looked back. But the company that Jerry, Bob, Phil, Bill, and Barbara knew underwent great change. The family feel of local control was lost in the nationwide insurance purchase in 1985. Then a series of owner changes followed for the health business in which I worked. I was one of the lucky survivors, managing to keep my job through the Liberty Mutual purchase, Wausau benefits buyout, sale to Fiserv, and final takeover by United Healthcare. 
There seemed to be a revolving door of corporate names. Employers Insurance of Wausau, Wausau Insurance Companies, Wausau Benefits, Fiserv Health, Avidine Health, and UMR. The constant through it all was the good fortune to be able to influence what my job was, what my responsibilities entailed. My work allowed me to use my abilities to express who I was. UMR was no exception. I worked with good people, people I liked. I was appreciated and rewarded well. I knew I could continue indefinitely. After 36 years, I knew something else. It was time to move on. Why? Poet John O'Donohue captured it well in his poem, Blessing for Retirement. This is where your life has arrived. After all those years of effort and toil, look back with graciousness and thanks on all your great and quiet achievements. You stand on the shore of new invitation to open your life to what is left undone. Let your heart enjoy a different rhythm when drawn to the wonder of other horizons. Have the courage for a new approach to time. Allow it to slow until you find freedom to draw alongside the mystery you hold and befriend your own beauty of soul. Now is the time to enjoy your heart's desire, to live the dreams you've waited for, to awaken the depths beyond your work and enter into your infinite source. Gainful employment is a great consumer of time. There is so much more out there. I eagerly look forward to the room in my life that stepping away from my career would bring. As I laid plans for how I would awaken my depths, I latched on to the idea of using some of that newfound time for deep diving into the New Yorker each week. For that was something that I wanted to try. And serendipitously, two friends each gave me the New Yorker gift subscriptions to mark the transition away from my employed identity. Both friends were English teachers, one at Horace Mann Middle School in Wausau. The other I met shortly after we began our freshman year in high school. She was that more mature, advanced peer who always seemed to understand more of the meaning of it all than almost anyone else. Beverly is still a marvel, plying her PhD at age 73, teaching high school English. An inveterate The New Yorker reader herself, she's been known to occasionally use it in class to illustrate what well-constructed sentences and exceptional creative writing looks like. Advanced high school students cannot thrive on Beowulf, Macbeth, and Otello alone.
The subject of her doctoral dissertation was Henry James, the renowned American novelist. And I'm frequently reminded of the wisdom of her Henry James reverence, for it seems rare that a New Yorker issue does not have at least one reference to his seemingly unparalleled writing skill. Now, my relationship with the New Yorker quickly blossomed, and I now anticipate the arrival of each week's issue in my mailbox as I would a visit from a trusted friend. I have thought about how that happened. Why has reading the New Yorker become so important to me? I think it's because it answers a deep-seated human need to have our heart and mind touched, to be moved. Also, because it speaks to a curiosity, our desire to better understand ourselves, to learn more about the human condition and the mysteries of the natural world. And it does those things using those marvelous sentences that are so well-crafted. I've fallen under its spell. Disciple-like, so often in the conversation I find myself saying, I read in the New Yorker about, followed by some reference to a truth I picked up in a recent article. There's almost a magic-like quality about how I am taken over by some article that I initially think is not something about which I am interested in. But start reading it. Then get swept up by what's written and how it's written. Now, as I prepared this message, I reflected on how my The New Yorker worship is related to my being a UU. And I'm struck by what I see as an interweave between what my readings have brought me and our UU principles and also our first UU mission. There's an interrelationship of truths and values. And I think reading The New Yorker has really deepened my commitment to what we stand for you use for and to our church's purpose, our reason for being. In my gratitude for my six-year abiding friendship with the New Yorker, part two of my message is a sharing of writing from the two issues I received after I committed to leading this service. I will be freely quoting, and some of these hope Quotes, I hope cause you to ponder and give you an appreciation for the writer's craft. Now, many issues contain an article about science or medicine, and in the most recent, Christine Kennelly tackled brain implants, which 200,000 people worldwide live with today. And her focus was on how they transform not only how patients feel, but also who they are. Through Kennelly's investigation, she learned, quote, it's becoming apparent 
that many people develop an intense relationship with their devices, often with profound effects on their sense of identity. Her interviews with Frederick Gilbert, a University of Tasmania philosopher studying implant patients, revealed that, quote, one found herself saying, the device became me. Gilbert's conclusion from his study was a symbiosis of machine and mind occurred and a new person emerged. After considering the philosopher's incorporation of his brain implant findings with his work on free will, Kennelly asks, suppose that someone whose brain was artificially stimulated committed a crime. Were they responsible for their actions? A major caution raised by the article is, quote, ethical issues are in constant danger of being overshadowed because of how rapidly technologies are developing. A lesson for all of us about the importance of pumping the brakes on new technologies as ethical arguments are debated. Now, in the same issue, I found myself underlying sentences that grabbed me in an article entitled, Her American Life, Alice Neal's Portraits of Difference. Critical reviews figure prominently in The New Yorker. And I've been especially drawn to visual art reviews, which I count on to tell me about artists who usually are unknown to me, their work, and perhaps most importantly, what their art says about us. Such is the case with Hilton Alls's review of an exhibition of 20th century American artist Alice Neal's paintings. Neal was a white woman who chose to live in Spanish Harlem and often painted people of color. And Alls writes that her work evinced, quote, her faith not only in the power of other people, but in the power and the necessity of articulating the deepest language that makes a self. Her faith not only in the power of other people, but in the power and the necessity of articulating the deepest language that makes a self. Now, Neil, the artist, knows about the self. In Alza's words, almost from the first, Neil, a sensitive girl who was prone to anxiety, felt steadied by the act of visualizing the world. Painting soon became a gateway into life and a bulwark against people who said she wasn't entitled to have one. When Neil told her grandmother that she wanted to be a painter, the older woman said, I don't know what you expect to do in the world, Alice. You're only a girl. Alls continues, resistance can breed resilience. Talent must be protected 
especially if it's viewed as a threat. And what's more threatening to the status quo than a visionary? Now, Alls goes on to write about Neil's genius this way. A commonplace observation about great portraitists is that they are always, in some way, painting themselves. Neil's genius was to make us understand not just her interest in her subjects, but why we are interested in one another. In describing the retrospective exhibition entitled Alice Neal, People Come First, Alls pulls out all his creative stops when he states, there's a profound spiritual component to the work. Her intense her intense and casual surfaces feel like a wall that she wants her subjects' souls to walk through to meet ours. At times, her focus, her desire to understand who her subjects are and, by extension, who you might be, can have you rushing out of the galleries for a breath of air. Makes me want to go to New York to see it. And finally, a John McPhee. I didn't know it, but I think this one's for Carl especially. McPhee got his The New Yorker start with this iconic January 1965 piece on Princeton basketball great and future Senator Bill Bradley. Having just celebrated his 80th birthday, McPhee's is a talent undiminished by the passing of so many years. I suspect in honor of his birthday, several short McPhee essays appeared in the April 19 issue. I close with one of them. It speaks to me about the random and irrational nature of life the unwitting influence of religion and perhaps lack of influence and the indelibility of a searing childhood memory. I'm sure I spoke my go-to The New Yorker utterance when I first read it. I so often say, that was really good. On a second read for Anne, my throat caught and my eyes moistened. <clears throat> December 19, 1943. In Sunday school, in the fall of the year when I was 12 years old, I was told that I would be ushering and passing a collection plate at the Christmas pageant, an annual living creche in the First Presbyterian Church of Princeton. I hated Sunday school. 
I resented having to attend. I learned nothing. I went to school Monday through Friday, and that was enough. I was a spiritual wasteland then as now. But I shrugged and didn't think about the pageant until the day was nigh. And Julian Boyd, who was 13 and did not go to Sunday school, told me about adventures he was having skating up the ice-covered Millstone River and asked me to come with him on, as it happened, the afternoon of the Christmas pageant. With no hesitation, I said I would. <clears throat> My mother saw this in a different light. She said, you are not going skating with Julian. You are ushering at the Christmas pageant. I pointed out that I was just one of several ushers. Her next remark was identical to the first one. <clears throat> John Graham, 12 years old, had been invited by Julian to skate up the millstone on the same afternoon. John was in no way burdened by religion and planned to go. Charlie Howard, 12, had already skated up the river with Julian, and we would be coming along this time, too. My mother was, in a word she liked, adamant. I howled and moaned and griped and begged, adamant. The afternoon came, and by now, you may have guessed where I was, in church, passing the plate, mad as hell, obedient. John Graham had come down with a severe cold and stayed at home in bed. Julian and Charlie died at an isolated place called the Sheep Wash, where the current of the millstone sped up and the ice, as a result, was thin. Next day, their bodies were collected off the bottom with grappling hooks. Each boy's arms were stiff and reaching forward, straight out from the shoulders. They had gone into the water through the thin ice, then clung to stronger ice closer to the edge of the river, but had not been able to climb out. Their arms reached over the ice supporting them until the cold killed them. Their small coffins were placed side by side in the crossing under the choir loft in the Princeton University Chapel. Helen Howard, Charlie's mother, was nearby with Charlie's father, Stanley Howard, a professor of economics, as was Grace Boy, Julian's mother, with her youngest son, Kenneth, and her husband, Julian Boyd, editor of The Papers of Thomas Jefferson. This was the second such funeral for the Boyds, who had lost a daughter some years before. I did not know Charlie Howard well, and the impact of his death stopped there. Not so with Julian whose future has remained beside me 
through all my extended past. That is to say, where would he have been and doing what? When? From time to time across the decades, I have thought of writing something, tracing parallel to mine the life he would have lived, might have lived, a chronology, a chronicle, a lost CV. But such, of course, from the first imagined days, is fiction. Actually, I have to try not to think about him because I see those arms reaching forward, grasping nothing. I've been thinking quite a bit about the addictive power of the New Yorker. And I know others in the congregation are also hooked. So what if instead of just talking to, our, talking to ourselves when we savor an issue, we got together with others to share thoughts and reactions? I proposed it to Brian, a fellow The New Yorker fan, and he's two thumbs up. So on a soon-to-be-announced date, the New Yorker readers and those who might want to be are invited to join in what I'm calling the New Yorker Noon Swoon. Now I'm catalyzing here and participants will decide what form and format it takes. But I do expect there will be some laughs over favorite cartoons. Now to the doxology and offertory. Freely have we received of gifts that minister to our needs of body and spirit. Gladly we bring to our church and its wide concerns a portion of this bounty. The mission and ministry of UU Wausau is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasaw.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you for your support. Please rise as Abel and join me in the doxology.
Please join me in singing the closing hymn number 1064 in the blue hymnal, Blue Boat Home. Our good words for this morning. The blessing of truth be upon us. The power of love direct us and sustain us. And may the peace of this community preserve our going out and our coming in from this time forth until we meet again. Please be seated for the postlude. Little before.
of me. 